0: Hey everybody, Blair Fraser here. Welcome back to another episode of Technology Disrupted, a Rob's Reliability Project podcast. Uh, this week's episode, I welcome Sunil and Graham of Nanoprecise and Dean of Benchmark Reliability Service to dig in to their platform um, and also to answer the question: Does confidence and precision matter in remote vibration monitoring? And the reason I asked them to come on to this podcast is, first of all, from a technology point of view, of using hardware, coupling it with software, leveraging AI. I think they have a great solution. But also, and if any of you follow the, you know, I'll call it the wireless vibration monitoring ecosystem out there, um, the number of companies that are doing this are growing by the day. It's getting harder and harder to differentiate the value from marketing hype with all these different providers that are out there so we fundamentally set out to answer the question does confidence and precision matter in remote vibration monitoring if you are considering um, putting in wireless vibration monitoring or you're even actively doing that and want to get a better understanding of how this data is used I highly recommend you listen to this podcast I truly appreciate you, you listening to this. Um, if you have any questions, you're, we, we posted the links to each of each of these people on the show notes, or feel free to reach out to me. And of course, if you have any ideas, any technology specifically for the Technology Disrupted podcast that you would like to dig into deeper, please feel free to post a comment. And just as a heads up, we are going to be rebranding this podcast shortly, um the name has been decided the logo has been done so watch out um it's going to be the same feed that you're currently getting this podcast on it's just going to be under a new name with this great same content you can expect uh week after week and of course the memes will still be pumped out every Monday um I really hope you enjoy this podcast and again if you have any comments suggestions please post them thank you Welcome, 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 everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Rob's Reliability Project. This is Blair Fraser speaking. Uh, today, we have special guests from NanoPrecise. We have Sunil, Graham, and uh, Dean, who is actually a, a partner of uh, NanoPrecise. If you've never heard of NanoPrecise, um, in my opinion, um, they are an up and comer in this ecosystem of um, condition monitoring, if you will. Um, you will hear about them eventually. So I wanted to get them on the podcast to, to catch them on their way up before they become too big to want to talk to us, essentially. (laughs) So, so welcome guys. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Thank you. So, um, so Sunil, why don't we start with you? Um, Why don't you give a
1: brief uh, overview of the, of the listeners of who you are? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for this opportunity, Blair. And uh, so uh, I, I have around ten years of experience in oil and gas as a mechanical engineer, uh, both uh, designing, uh, you know, systems like pipe, pipelines and piping systems, and also on the site. So I, I uh, encountered problems that where the equipments failed all of a sudden, causing massive downtimes and affecting bottom lines. So that's how I got inspired. That if we can detect the problems up front and tell them in advance while the machines are in operation, it can save a lot of money. And that's how the Nanoprecise came into existence.
0: And that's how it's formed. And your role at Nanoprecise is, I'm the CEO and founder of Nanoprecise. There you go. Got it. Perfect. Now let's move over to you, Graham. Graham, we've 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 done a lot of chatting in the past, uh, so I'll let you do a quick introduction of yourself.
2: Yeah, yeah. I always uh, learn something new when I talk to you, Blair. So. <laughs> Uh, we, we often get off on interesting paths. Uh,
0: we do go down a wormhole sometimes, for sure.
2: Which is good. You know? yeah. uh, that, that's what I do. and uh, So I, I'm in business development with Nanoprecise uh, and uh, been around a variety of different industries over the years, everything from oil and gas to elevator manufacturing to uh, now in the predictive maintenance monitoring uh, end of things. So it's been kind of a wild ride. And, for sure. Uh,
0: Love uh, talking about this stuff. So. Yeah, I could go into a lot of questions about elevator manufacturing, um, but we'll, sk- we'll skip over that. And then uh, um, you brought one of your partners, uh, Dean, on the on, on this podcast, which is, and, and you know, Dean's going to bring some some boots on the ground, real-life use cases about this technology to our listeners. So, Dean, welcome to the show. You mind doing a, a brief introduction?
3: Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for inviting me. My name Dean Stevens from Benchmark Reliability Services out of Saskatoon. Um, I've got a reliability background coming up 20 years strong now. Start kind of started in the uh, mining space and then um, got into the inspection field for a good decade as well. So my experience is mostly rotating equipment, but also do a lot of electrical inspection and um, been heavily involved with uh, risk-based inspection on structural assets and with rope access. So great, kind of just... Uh, whole roundabout, uh,
0: bag of goodies. Good, good. Well, thanks for joining us, Dean. And then thank you to the nano precise team here. So, um, to, to the group here and I, uh, sorry, I should introduce Steve Doby. Everyone listening is going to know Steve, but Steve uh, was able to join, uh, this, this podcast of the technology disrupted, looking at technology. So Steve, thanks for taking the time.
4: Thanks. Thanks Blair.
0: Um, so, so nano precise guys, um, you know. I spend a ridiculous amount of time, and this is where Graham and I often chat about looking at this ecosystem, looking at the ecosystem what's out there in condition monitoring. And like I think it was probably so we're in 2020. It's pretty hard not to forget that. So I think around late 2017, 2018, I stopped counting the number of vendors out there that are strapping a mem sensors to a piece of metal and calling it a vibration sensor. Cause I just couldn't keep up, right? Everyone seemed to have a vibration sensor. And if you would have asked me, does the world need another vibration sensor company? I would have said no. right? And I've been wrong about this a few times. And the other was when I said the world doesn't need another CMMS. And then Flick Software came up and upkeep and those guys. right? So I've been wrong a few times. But specifically in this, I just couldn't keep up to the amount of people creating sensors. And here you guys are disrupting an oversaturated market, in my opinion, and having great results from it. So obviously you're doing something very, very different, right? And from my opinion, it looks like it's coming from a combination of um, very precise um, hardware designed for purpose, coupled with leading edge technology from a software point of view. Now, when you get those two together, then you have a disruptor in the marketplace. So Sunil Graham, why don't you guys just walk us through at an overview at a high level, what it is you guys do with your hardware and software
1: uh sure uh graham you want to uh, take on that or yeah sure
2: so the the 90 second uh discussion is that you're absolutely right blair the vibration sensor market you know you can buy a mem sensor and package it into something and put it on a machine and you know wirelessly transmit some data
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: that doesn't necessarily get you where you really want to go you know because once you have data that's lovely but well when you start looking at how we're collecting data or collecting a lot of it. And, uh, you know, we're not alone in this market, sure, but there's, you know, we're not just a sensor manufacturer. It's that next level up where you're going, okay, uh, how do you automate the review of all this data so that, you know, it doesn't require a human to go in and look at it all the time. And, and Dean uh, is, you know, a, a vibration analyst person, a skilled one, and he'll uh, comment a little more on that. But you know, if you're going doing root-based monitoring, you know, machine to machine, even monthly or quarterly, well, that's a very low volume of data. We're collecting data multiple times a day, full waveforms. How do you actually process all of that in an effective way that isn't just a pure, is the RMS value for vibration high or low? And Emerson uh, is a big player in this market too. And they will agree 100% with us that collecting just RMS is at high or low is almost just marginally better than doing nothing at all. So what you have to get to is a full automation of the analysis of that vibration signatures. And that's much easier to say than it is to do. And that's the big difference between what Nanoprecise is doing and what uh, others were doing historically. They were still applying humans to all of this all the time. And, and we're taking that next stage up. Going, we're not replacing analysts, but we're making that grunt work of uh, every day handling thousands of reviews of analysis on on a deep level, no longer a human task. You only go back in with an analyst after something has been flagged by the system.
0: Right, and I think that's that is the key differentiator. And I, I don't think anyone, including Emerson, would disagree with that. Um, with the with the value of of you know generating not just looking at RMS values, but looking at the time waveform, looking at spectrum analysis, because that's really that needle in a haystack you're looking for, right? Um, and I think the key point there was, you know, using an overall, and, and we've seen this, and I'm sure you guys have seen this, anyone that has spent, you know, any more than a day in industry, you see equipment come, oh, yeah, we have vibration monitoring, and it's a vibration switch, right? The, the equipment literally is walking down the hallway, and then it might it might trip off eventually, Right. Um, or, or a protection system on the other end where it's going to protect safety and equipment just to doesn't kill anybody right um, but really we're trying to get into you know what was talking about of, of you know of, of things that spin in a circle have a high tendency to break and, and really what you're trying to do is that um, the one thing when I look at a um, look at it is there's also a differentiator in the in the technology you're doing it yourself right and and, and you know when I go to your website you call it machine doctor and I think that's you know, relative of what you guys are doing, but the, the preciseness and, and maybe Dean, you can get into this, the preciseness of the measurements you are taking. Right. Um, and I've seen some of your guys posts on LinkedIn and things like that with some of your case studies. And one of that, re- that first caught my eye was the ability to calculate RPM, right. Or the ability to determine what the RPM is. Okay. And for, I, I'm a, uh, a level one vibration, which means I'm just enough to be dangerous. Right. But I'm nowhere near, near an expert. So, you know, with, with all things spinning in a circle, you know, everything really comes back to speed, speed changes the displacement of everything and stuff like that. So this is just one key point. I want to go down this wormhole is why is RPM important and, and why did you guys celebrate being so accurate to be able to, um, I guess, measure the this, the, the, the rotational speed of, of equipment.
3: Yeah, so RPM, in my opinion, is probably one of the most important things because when it comes down to actually analyzing a spectrum or a time waveform for that matter, if you don't know where your what your RPM is, um, you literally can't figure out what all the data means, right? So if you're looking at a spectrum, for instance, and you see a spike at you know, 32.6 Hertz. Um, you have no idea what that means unless you're very um, historically keen on what that machine generates for frequencies, but it all comes back to the RPM because your bearing calculations, you know, your number of teeth, your number of veins, everything is related to the actual shaft speed. So that's why it's important for a, a good accurate RPM calculation with every measurement. Otherwise, you know, from, from the nano precise sensor, if it, the RPM wasn't correct, then all your algorithms and everything are related to that and uh, it's not gonna be accurate either. So you're gonna miss out on a lot of the, the legwork that uh, the sensor itself and ag- algorithms do for you.
0: Right. Good. So, yeah, and th- that's always caught my eye. And if you want to figure out that study, I'm sure reach out to the NanoPrecise guys. It's actually quite an interesting study where they compared, and I think it was 98, 99% accuracy of determining that speed. And so I'm going to stick on the, the software, or sorry, the hardware piece for a bit, because I do think there's value in, in looking at that the hardware piece of it. Now, it, it's quite evident when you go to your website and you start looking at it. Um, it stands out because, and, and I had this direct from uh, a customer. I was talking to unrelated to this podcast. I was talking to a customer and he said, Hey, Blair, have you ever heard of these nano precise guys up in your area? So I'm from, I'm from the Toronto area and this guy just assumes that we're close, even though you guys are <laughs> in Alberta. Right. But ironically, I do know you guys. Right. So I said, absolutely. I do, <laughs> I do know those guys and I think they have great technology. Um, and what stood out for this person I was talking to, we said, they measure vibration, acoustic emissions, speed, temperature, and humidity in one, one sensor. Right. And like, yes. you kind of hold it up one sensor to rule them all. Right. Yeah. So so here we are. And Graham, you mentioned it saying, obviously it comes back to data. Now, the first thing Steve Doby is thinking about is data means challenge. Like if you have data and, and Steve, I'm sure at, at tech, you have a lot of data, right? Everyone's saying, you know, get data, 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 data is useless without insights. Absolutely, it is useless without (laughs) its insights. I got so much data here; I could probably solve all the world's problem, but I have no idea how to do it. And that's the difference, right? So I disagree when everyone says data is the new gold. I've been on a a five year bender of saying data is not the new gold; it's insights is the new gold. That's what we need to get to. And I'm saying don't don't stop generating data because we need that. And and you know, you guys are doing some work in mining, and Steve, you come from mining, so I look at as um, data is the raw ore, and insights is the gold that comes from that ore, right? We're mining that ore, but we're trying to process it and to, and to get the gold out of that. So um, when you look at generating vibration, acoustic emission, speed, temperature, and humidity, that's a lot of data coming in. Why is all of those measurements important? Why do I care? Because I'm going to be quite honest, I have no idea what your pricing model is, and we can get into that if you want. But right now I can go on, I can buy a MEM sensor that's giving me vibration. Even I would even challenge that I can pull a spectrum from it. Maybe not easily, maybe once a day, but I can get it. Why are these other variables important?
1: Yeah. So uh, as as the name of our product suggests, machine doctor, right? A doctor, like, uh, you know, a test for a patient, uh, you know, and patient has five senses. And there are three basic objectives that uh, patient, you know, and the doctor relationship works on. One is anomaly detection. Mm -hmm. Second is fault characterization. And the third is remaining time to failure prediction, right? Mm-hmm. Based on the fault and how yep. much time, uh, you know, the, because if you tell someone that, okay, he has a cancer and, and you tell, you don't know how, how long he will live, like the, the the person would be annoyed. So why we need these five, uh, six character uh, parameters uh, is basically to achieve these three objectives with one solution. For example, we use acoustic emission and temperature to do anomaly detection. Because what we Mm -hmm. found out that vibration is very susceptible to changes. Like you have uh, four combinations, speed and load. Like, uh, so either the load and speed both changes, which is the worst case objective, or none of them changes, which is the constant speed, constant load, which is not the most difficult. So uh, with uh, acoustic and uh, temperature, that's not the problem even when the load changes acoustic is supposed to be very consistent and it you is. might know yep. this
0: yeah yeah it uh, yep. yeah it's it's not directly correlated to speed right we don't see a big change in acoustic emissions when when the load changes exactly on a, so on we, a healthy on a healthy rotating piece of on it. a healthy yes right. exactly
1: yes so uh, and and we use that as a precursor to tell but you know uh, uh you know acoustic emission that is so useful for anomaly detection is not that much useful or you know needs a lot of data and lots of ai you know not you know training which can be very expensive to achieve fault mode characterization and vibration so, so, sorry say, say that say that. one to get so what was it you said something about characterization what was the yeah, first the fault word the fault mode character fault the mode mode char- detection. Okay. yeah okay i mean not just telling there is some problem but what is the problem right so uh, like vibration signal and waveform uh, you know if when uh, acoustic signals that there is some problem at that time if a big waveform is taken and a very solid uh, you know a time frequency domain uh, you know analysis is done on that and if we get down to the problem there might be 10 problems even on a single sensor right bearing inner race outer race everything yep. We, we can detect all of those problems and see which one is uh, moving uh, with more severity. And that is where the remaining time to failure comes into picture. And again, here, as you mentioned, this, we need to see, like, for example, for a variable speed machine, right? Like, uh, because the, uh, the speed is changing, we need to uh, adapt the characteristic frequencies of individual components to that instantaneous speed, right? right. And if we don't do that, we will get a lot of false positives and we are in an industry where we need to not send too many false positives to the customer at the same time, not miss any catastrophic failure.
4: Right. Yeah. Right. So I've got a question for you. So like when we're talking about that uh, remaining time to failure, um, how accurate are, are you guys in with that? I know, like I've tried to do some of that work in the past with other types of sensors and we, we don't have a lot of success there um how are you guys getting i guess what what is your your success rate what's your probability um obviously the closer you get to the time of failure the more confident you are but are you like if you're saying three months is it is it three months
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so so that's uh so very good question so see uh, there is a philosophy behind how we are doing uh, approaching this thing because definitely it's it's very very you know difficult to calculate and predict the time to failure for anything in this world let alone you know a machine so uh, so we we uh, call it as remaining useful life or the remaining time to failure so when we call it as remaining useful life we give it in a percentage and the percentage is basically nothing but you know if if the uh, if the threshold value is something right? Uh, you know, what's the current fitted value and one minus the current fitted value divided by the threshold, right? So we call it as a, we, we put it as a percentage. But when we convert that remaining useful life to remaining time to failure, when it reaches below 750 hours, because the the, the concept of remaining time to failure is very different from remaining useful life. It Remaining time to failure means we need to tell the person so that he can take some action. but And it has to be in that window. It cannot be too early. It cannot be too late. So when it is, we find found that uh, based on, I mean, we ask for what is the MTBF of, of a specific equipment uh, before the start of the project. So based on that, we come up with uh, this, uh, what should be the number of hours uh, below which we will tell uh, the customer about the mm-hmm. remaining time to failure. And when we say that, see, uh, the important thing is uh, it keeps, it can fluctuate quite a bit. Um, And when it reaches below 750 hours, and we have something called variance and the confidence interval, we only tell even when it is less than 750 hours, we will only tell when the, it is below, like when it is above 95% confidence interval, and the variance is also very low. So that means that it will not vary so much. Right. So, so that's why, you know, uh, that's how we can provide credibility to this metric. Yeah. So because you've put that,
4: that tight bounding around what you'll notify the customers of obviously to reduce uh, false positives, are you seeing um, a lot of, uh, I guess, false negatives in there as well then?
1: Yeah. So uh, good question. Very good question. So, um, uh, so to to do that to avoid false negatives and, and in turn any catastrophic failure right that's that's a major problem, and uh, so so we introduce something called nano AI alarm on the false ampli- fault amplitudes. So for example, uh, there are some faults which go very gradually. There are some faults which appear all of a sudden and just fail right away. Right, mm-hmm. and uh, there are some faults which you know uh, step up and then stay there for some time. And then again, step up, and so that's how they they increase in steps. So, uh, uh, like, so do, through this nano AI, uh, first of all, we are able to uh, automatically uh, put this threshold based on the uh, the the uh, you know the user's existing level. We don't uh, the nano AI does not go- get governed by the standards and the OEMs and all that because every machine condition is different. But uh, you know, so that basically uh, helps us to send that alert. Now, uh, regarding and, and see, the good thing is with the fault uh, alert on the fault amplitude. Honestly, if the, the bearing failure is there and the sensor is accurate enough, having four harmonics of it match completely on 8,000 lines of resolution and not having a fault is a very low probability. That's right. right? Definitely, there is a problem. So, uh, when there is a problem at that time and the nano AI sends an alert, we don't tell the life because we are not sure so when we when we are not sure we will not tell that but when we are when there is an alert and uh, because of the fault we tell that there seems to be a fault but at this time we cannot uh, tell you uh, uh, you know with conform- uh, conformity what is what is the level of the severity we are tracking it but we want to have you a look at it yeah so oh, yeah fascinating sorry blair i took you yeah, no that was
4: into software
0: brilliant <laughs> no that was brilliant because you can't have you can't have that answer without having this, the hardware and the software and I think there's there's something that's very credible that you just gave in that answer, Sunil. And I think I want to repeat that is if you're not confident in the the remaining time to failure, you will not give it. Yes. Right. You're gonna say you're gonna flag it, right? But that's the equivalent, um, you know, in the human world of people just guessing, saying, ah, "I think it's this, it's this, it's this," without having a, you know, the facts to actually call it. Right. I think that's a, a big difference. Um, That'll and,
4: That'll kill a project so fast uh, oh, well. if you,
0: <laughs> I always said that you get in our industry, you get one kick at the can. Yeah. If you say, Hey, this machine is going to break. Okay. Let's test. Let's keep on running it. <laughs> and it didn't, or you say, Hey, there's something wrong with that. And you pull that apart and there's not you're done. Right. Yeah. You just <laughs> lost the, the confidence. And, and Dean, I'm sure, you know, this, The the biggest challenge that you know everyone has talked to in, in the reliability community is culture change. is 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 the ability to to change the culture and this is the way we've always done this i don't believe in this way and things like that right so i think you guys are are doing a great job with with that you know building that as you said the confidence um up in these these things
3: yeah and i was just going to add and that's that's the importance of having multiple technologies to you know because like they say you know even a simple ac electric motor has over 100 different ways and can fail well Vibration analysis will probably only captures, you know, 70, right. yep. 60, 70% of those. So what happens with the other 30%? Well, that's where temperature comes in. This is where acoustics comes in. And, you know, so, and there's some other technologies, right? Yep. So by kind of summarizing all the technologies together, and hopefully you got one or two technologies that are telling you the same story, then there goes your confidence level. It boosts it um, because you've got more data to, to analyze and tell you the same thing. Right.
4: So the, the power really isn't in, because like, like you said, Blair, I can get a vibration. I can get an acoustic sensor. I can get all these sensors separate. They're pretty available, not not particularly expensive, but the value there, and I think we go back to it a lot, is in how it all interacts together and the ML algorithms and things behind it, eh?
0: That, that, in my opinion, yeah, that's the that is the real thing when you start merging this this technologies together and 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 as dean was saying there is not one technology to rule them all right and we're even you know um on an upcoming podcast we're going to talk to someone that's just doing you know kind of an advanced motor current analysis using um using ai which which i'm fascinated with and and obviously I am always, when technology comes up, I'm always going to go down that pathway of AI and machine learning, right? It's just a natural tendency for me to go that way because I do think we're going to start seeing, seeing, but the way that you guys are approaching it um, with that credibility factor, because one thing I've always, always hated, I don't know if you guys do it or not, and I should have prepped you for this question, is this concept of an overall asset health number based on one technology. I think it's it has set back our industry so far Oh, I know that I know the health of this, you know, just as you said, I know this health of this motor because I put a vibration sensor on. Well, there's, as the Dean said, there's still 30% more ways that this darn thing can fail. That vibration is not going to pick it up. Right. Um, so that, that was one of the biggest things. And I saw that early on as this technology started to come out, like when I say this technology industry 4.0, you know, people saying, oh, yeah, I can calculate, you know, and, and some of the big, big fortune 500 companies started doing that. Here's your overall of health. And then they realized, well, oh, we got to bring some more technology in here to, to get that, get that confidence. So Sunil, you were talking about, if I look at this pathway correct, um, anomaly detection. So you're using acoustic and temperature for that basic anomaly detection, right? I'm assuming there it's some sort of unsupervised learning type thing, just learn the normal patterns of the way this is operating. And one of the keynotes I took away was you're not using, you know, there's ISO standards out there, you can read them to death and this bearing and this installation should have this much, which we all know is BS. Right, everything in the lab is not repeatable in industry. Right, exactly. controlled environment, perfectly installed. There's no—I've never seen two identical bearings on two different machines act the same way. They've been installed differently, maintained differently. They're manufactured by um, the bearing manufacturing differently. Right, there's a lot of variables. Um, so you're using that first anomaly detection to flag, hey, there's something going on here. There's there's something abnormal. Right. And then you're moving over to that fault mode, uh, characterization. I get that. Right. Yes. Right. So that's when you start to determine inner race, outer race, all that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Can you have one without the other? So can you have, Hey, there's something wrong with this bearing, but based on this technology or based on what we're seeing from the waveform from these other sensors, we don't still know what it is, but there's something wrong with this. You need to go out and look at it. Is that, is that a a process in, in your workflow?
1: Yes. I mean, uh, just doing, uh, uh, anomaly detection, you know, as, as, uh, Graham mentioned before, uh, uh like it, 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 it increases the number of, uh, alerts for the customer. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing, uh, you know, uh, our customers come from other existing vendors, uh, saying that, Oh, we have a lot of alerts. And see, we are in a business where, as I, as I mentioned, like, we if we start like uh, uh you know and we have one of the customer like um, earlier you know uh, he was uh, like uh, he he missed one notification because he was looking at some other uh, fault notifications uh, anomaly detection related notifications where mm-hmm. he didn't have to really t- d- 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 pay too much attention because anomaly detection can uh, anomaly can happen either due to the fault uh, of you know some fault arising or due to just some process fluctuation. Absolutely, yep. Yeah, so so you know, so if he gets used to that and ignoring it, he might ignore a big fault mode, right? Right. And in fact, it happened with our customer. He ignored it, but we sent seven notifications that day, even for the fault mode. But because of that habit, uh, he ignored it, and the next day the failure happened. And uh, you know, and from now onwards, uh, what we have is we clearly in the subject line distinguish between which one is anomaly detection. And which one is fault mm-hmm. mode related. So and that, that and really that, helps.
0: Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, and that goes back to Steve's podcast, right? Of that's great. You can detect all this stuff, but what are you going to do with it? Yes. Right. And so I, I read a recent study and I, I said it on my last webinar, an average manufacturing facility. So manufacturing, right? Not considering energy oil. Um, I think it was 2,634 bearings.
1: Wow.
0: Right. And, you know, you look in mining, you look in oil and gas, I don't care, upstream, downstream, there's a lot of things that move in a circle, right? So if you started to do anomalies on all those, you can start to imagine we will get in the cry wolf syndrome, right? Yes. So I think it's not possible. Yeah, it's just not possible. Even though you're still doing AI to uncover those, there's still, you still need humans to go and address and solve these problems, right? So if you cry wolf, right, you still have to
1: prioritize, Right probably it kills the purpose of automation and does more effort now. That's right. So uh, not to move too far from the tech side,
4: like uh, your prioritization, like, you know, that was when I was a consultant, that was the worst thing is I gave, we gave people a list of here is 300 things that you need to address right away. (laughs) Um, How, how are you guys distinguishing those? Like, you know, you install install a few of these sensors on different things and now all of a sudden each one of them is saying you need a, a problem do you have something that is ranking those a little better for everybody or um again more on the software side and less technology but
1: <laughs> yeah a good question uh, so we have four types of notifications so anomaly detection that comes from the sensor uh, anomaly detection that comes from the cloud Uh, then fault uh, nano AI on the fault mode. And then finally the fault, uh, you know, uh, notification because of the remaining time to failure thing, right? So, and the remaining time to failure thing is really conservative that when it actually, you know, we have a record actually of whenever, I mean, our our, uh, fault mode due to remaining time to failure, uh, fault mode notification because of remaining time to failure uh, has been trailing a little bit, has been a little bit too conservative that, the problem has uh, occurred and some customers really liked it because they want to attend at the last stage not you know they want just want to have a downtime not, uh, and they don't want to, uh, you know, uh, like a bother too early, right? So in this way, basically, you know, like we, uh, so we have the criticality rating, like a needs uh, immediate attention. So when whenever we have remaining useful life of zero percentage or remaining time to failure less than 300 hours, it says needs immediate attention. And then um, uh, when there is something like, uh, you know, nano AI, it says needs attention. And, uh, you know, if, Uh, or or need maintenance review and if there is some kind of anomaly which is very you know aggressive it may call as need maintenance review right other than uh, otherwise it will be healthy but we make sure that just at the anomaly detection stage we don't give it as needs maintenance review because the moment we say needs maintenance review we are increasing the work that's right
3: yeah, I think after that, then it's a little bit more up to the client, right? Because they understand their facility and they understand the actual criticality of their machines, the costs involved with downtime and, and well, risk. You hope
4: on. they do, right?
0: I was going to say, I might argue
3: that. Yeah, and, 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 and that's that's the <laughs> okay. challenge.
0: And, and that's something as I go on my uh, AI machine learning uh, bandwagon here and say, you know, it, is, it's you still have to have the foundation, right? You still have to know criticality, prioritization. You have to have the right planning and scheduling practices in place to be able to address these. It's great that you can detect them, but they're still, you know, uh, I'd say really it's an upstream process to to have that backing net. So I really want to get into. So we haven't really dived into how the tech really works. So you know, you have um, your sensor gets mounted on a on a bearing, um, right? Um, From there, uh, you know typical, typical tech when it comes to this is it's, it's transmitting through some protocol to a hub, right? Some kind of gateway, yes. right? Um, uh, what, what's your primary technology of, of using Bluetooth, LoRaWAN? How are you getting that information? Because you made a comment there, Sunil, which I really want to get down that that wormhole was, you know, there's anomaly detection coming from the sensor, there's anomaly detection coming from the cloud, Right. And right there, there's some secret sauce there, right? <laughs> yes. Right, yes, and and um, I'm a big fan of the cloud. I'm also yeah. uh, just as big fan, or even bigger of edge, or or fog node, if you want to call it that as well. Um, so, information from these these the vibration, the acoustics, the the speed, temperature, humidity is getting transmitted to this hub unit. What what are you using as a protocol to get that information?
1: Yeah. So, uh, really good question. So we are using uh, Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Okay, and right now, and uh, it's 802.11. Yep. But we just launched our model for cellular plus Wi-Fi plus Bluetooth. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so uh, so basically with uh, uh, with the eSIM technology. Yep. So now for, for 100 countries, for 343 telecom operators, you just switch on the sensor as long as you have CAT 1M or NB-IoT. Yep. And the, la- the lowest uh, end of the spectrum that is 2G. It also works on 2G. Great. So as long as it uh, you switch on the sensor in these hundred countries, it will connect to internet. Isn't
0: yes. that, isn't that amazing? And, and yes. yeah, like what, what technology and people often ask me Blair, what do you think 5g is going to do right for technology? Yes. And I said, we haven't even got to figure out what 4g is going to do for us. yet, Right. <laughs> we'll get, we'll get to there. It's going to have this, this benefit. But when you start thinking, and you know, I, I always, people get stuck on scaling a project. So if they do, you know, they do a project here in Canada or US, oh, we have another sister plan in Europe, we want to bring this technology to, right? That's a whole different ballgame over there, right? And if it's literally flipping a switch, obviously, there's some CE certification and stuff for Europe, but um, that type of technology. So are you telling me, is there this eSIM in each of these devices?
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, Yes. Yeah, so basically, there is a so so the new uh, product that we we just uh, launched. So basically, uh, it still works on our existing one. So we have around more than 2500 sensors installed now in the field or procured. So mm-hmm. most of them, um, all of them are uh, Wi Fi, right? Mm-hmm. So this Wi Fi plus Bluetooth plus cellular, it will be like a, you know, you will still have that Wi-Fi option. You will still have the option to just take away the cellular part. Mm-hmm. So the eSIM is basically like a daughter board to that motherboard. Yep. And uh, if you want it uh, for, you know, that you don't, I mean, the, our user don't want to invest in their uh, IoT network for that, you know, we can have this, but if right. they have their own network, you can just take it off. It's like a connector. Right. So yep. it still works on our Wi-Fi plus, uh, you know, Wi-Fi plus Bluetooth. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So when it's connecting to the Wi-Fi network, is it that then connecting to a hub, or is it going directly from the from a sensor up into um,
1: your software in the cloud? Yes, it's going directly from the sensor to the cloud. I mean, there's basically uh, you know uh, like a, a hotspot, you know, but hotspot I would not call it as a gateway, right? Because there's a difference between hotspot and a gateway, mm-hmm. uh, because gateway does process the data. In our case, uh, we are not processing any data at the gateway the smart uh hotspot uh, hot level uh we, we are basically processing at the sensor end. so going back to your question about so we we very uh you know designed a smart way of uh you know utilizing both the edge computing mm-hmm. and the cloud computing so uh let's say we we send four to six times per per day uh to the cloud um and uh you know if there is no anomaly right and uh uh, and, and and these are big data, not the small yeah, data. That's right. yeah. and, and, and we do the uh, anomaly detection at the edge every 36 seconds. So uh, basically every 36 seconds we are taking, I mean, it varies 36 seconds or five minutes or I mean, sometimes sure. it's not needed. Yeah,
0: that's right. And I think no one's going to care whether it's 36 minutes or five seconds, right? Yes. The reality is there, what people should be caring about is that it's it's always checking. Right. And there's, there's been a concept in our industry of this wake up. Hey, I'm going to wake up my sensor twice a day and I'm going to take a measurement. Right. And which we've had to do that. Like, even if you were to go on the path and I'm sure you've done that of, of just battery life. And you know, I've stopped talking about battery life because if, if, (laughs) if people are so concerned about battery life, then wireless is probably not the right solution for you. Um, but, um, you know, this concept to save battery life. So we don't have to go change a battery that you wake a sensor up, it takes a reading and it goes back to sleep. Right. And if you do that, you know, because we are in what you guys have had to address for anyone out there listening that that's not familiar with this to send a spectrum is, as Neil mentioned, is a considerable amount of data, right. A considerable amount. Right. And there's other big players out there that, you know, send thumbnails, like a pit, literally a picture of this, not the raw data, but a picture of the spectrum so someone can look at it, right? But you're spending this this data, but you're doing this anomaly detection. You're waking up, or not even waking up, you're listening, saying, hey, anything going on? Anything mm-hmm. going on? Whether it's mm-hmm. 36 seconds or five minutes, you just aren't going to care. And then I'm assuming what happens is if it texts an anomaly, then you can generate more data, right? And grab exactly. that, that additional, right? So yes, you're not going to exactly. miss anything, right? Because a lot yes. can happen in a five, eight, 10 hour, 12 hour time frame that we just for don't sure. pick up because it was sleeping. Right. Yes. Wouldn't yes. that be great if all of us get to sleep for half our job. Right. Yes. And then just get woken up other than operators in our industry. Right. <laughs> um, but th- and- that's great. Okay. So we have these sensors. It's, 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 it's measuring. And then it gets to your, um, it gets to your software. There is some interest that I've seen there. Um, and it looks like you can get some of this data. Into existing what I call operational technology systems, mm-hmm. right? Um, OSI PI Delta V and stuff like that, right? Um, how do you go about doing that? Does it go up to the cloud and then to these systems, or how how would that data get into those systems?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I mean, uh, Graham, you want to you want to comment on that one? Yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean. The- The moving data around is actually one of the easiest things to do these days in terms of, you know, you want to go to a historian or you want to go to somebody's uh, private cloud or you want it to go to an operational dashboard. Most of these things are getting pretty easy. I mean, there's a whole list of IoT platform companies that basically do this as a service for big organizations. So in our experience, we haven't had too many struggles with moving pieces of data to where somebody might want them to go. Uh, and I think even Dean, with uh, one of his key customers, Nutrien, uh, you know, they asked us to work with a company co- uh, called XM Pro uh, for something very similar. And you know, it, it really I think took three phone calls to decide. Okay, well, this is how it's done, and it's just effort after that. Right. Uh, so it's you know whether it be Kafka or uh, you know some MQTT <laughs> or something else or whatever. Like there, the protocols exist. It's
0: it protocols and. And listeners won't see me, but, uh, I had a huge smile on my face when I heard Kafka. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's going to get on everyone's tongue eventually. And everyone listening to that is going like, what the heck is Kafka? And those that are, do understand why I'm so excited about this technology, but that's a whole other podcast on, so on, in terms of, of, uh, you know, Kafka and even MQTT with a pub subscribe describe uh, things that things and I think you're Graham, I think you're spot on da- moving data around is easy. Anyone in it listening to this is going to say, heck no, it's not, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, Relatively, it' easy, and and the point I want to get across there is, you know, I, I've always said the world doesn't need another platform, but I've also said, and and you know, people will fight me on this, but like a spectrum, a vibration spectrum does not belong in a plant historian.
2: Yeah, it, I agree. It, entirely. it, it, it doesn't.
0: <laughs> it, to me, it doesn't. Like, why why do that? There's purpose built, right? And and for <laughs> insights from that spectrum can go into a plant historian insights can go, but the raw spectrum, I don't think should be in there. But um, so, Greg, or sorry, um, Dean, I want to um, talk to you because, you know, essentially, you're using this technology, you boots on the ground. Um, Can you give me some examples of what you've been able to detect? And, you know, doing this 20 plus years, you've, you've put a number of analyzers in your hands, all technologies. What are some of the the things you've been able to detect that you think is really makes this technology stand out?
3: Um, well, a good example was um, using these sensors on a gearbox application. Okay. So a lot of other competitors, um, you know, they've they've kind of kicked off this whole ball game with IOT and, and by installing on a pump or, you know, a fan bearing or something, I'm going to call it the more simpler machine. Yep. When you get into gearboxes, compressors, Uh, things like that that have multiple turning frequencies, et cetera. Uh, It kind of complexes the game a bit. And um, so, yeah, a couple of good examples has has been around gearboxes specifically where um, the sensor has picked up specific bearing frequencies within a whole mess of a spectrum with, you know, gears and and other bearings within the same box. And I think that in itself, um, being able to detect, and pick out the specific frequency and what the specific problem of that gearbox is provides just that much more detail and that much more power to the end user. So, so that that's what it comes down to. Right. And a lot of these other sensors, you know, if you're just measuring a, a motor or a pump that has more simple uh, failure modes or ways that it can, or amount of ways that it can fail, then you know most other competitors can. Can detect that but sure it really comes down I, to dicing complex and i agree i agree yep. machines then yep. yeah 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 and,
0: and that's yeah i've always been a fan of you know being linking your go-to-market strategy with with what you're really good at. and i think that's exactly where it is As i said compressors gearboxes and things like that and i think you know from your experience you know i don't think well there's always going to be value with an experienced analyst, technician, engineer, going out to an asset because they're using the other senses as well. They're using their eyes, their ears, their mouth. I don't know how they'd use their mouth, I guess, from taste. If you could taste it, it's probably pretty down that failure curve or smell. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that tastes like burning. Um, but you get the point, like things leaking and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, when I was talking to, to Graham, and I'll, I'll put this out there, is, you know, really the the benefit is it's it's the equivalent of having those technologies as if you're standing next to it with a dedicated analyzer, but you're sitting in your house, right? Um, to, to get that level of, of information, which is tremendous, right? Um, and then what Graham and I were talking about um, was this idea of, you know, and what Graham, that, you know, 90-second overview gave us was, it really came down to sifting through that data, right? So yeah. from, your, from your point, Dean, how, how is, you know, that, that automated, you know, primarily fed by artificial intelligence, sifting through that data, trying to give you insights. How is that helping you do your job to you know, help these customers diagnose a problem and address it?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, it's, it's saving a lot of time, right? Because the sensor's doing all the legwork and the, the horsepower behind condition-based monitoring. But when it comes down to actually detecting a fault or, or analyzing the problem, Um, the time waveform and the spectrum are extremely important and having enough resolution in those sets of data is also important that's um, and that's where it separates the men from the boys as well because a lot of other sensors just don't have the resolution you need sometimes
0: it's yep yep, no it's very common or or and i'll even throw it out there or you know we're we have lists our, our our majority of our listeners are, are North American based, but we do have some overseas, but you have to understand where some of your installations are. Um, winter's not a very friendly place, right? <laughs> Let's be yeah. honest, right? Yeah. And, you know, specifically electronics and stuff like that, temperature can be, you can, you can hit some limits, right? A lot of people design sensors for this. I think they're designed to work at the equator right? Like it's just a perfect tempered where you'd have a pina colada, right? But that's not real life. Manufacturing is hot, whether it's indoors, outdoors, you know, Northern Canada, wherever it is. So, um, you know, not having to go out there to take those measurements in that kind of atmosphere eliminates the safety aspect of it all, but also still having the confidence and accuracy, right? To trust trust
3: those data. Yeah and it it still comes down to knowing your machine a little bit too um and and that's kind of where my background comes in really handy because i understand a lot of the equipment that my clients have so i'm able to kind of help them through the data too if they want if they really want to dissect it but yeah another great examples in the in the uranium mining industry where a lot of these areas you have to you have to put on a big bubble suit and that's right protect yourself from radiation and yeah. Um, so we, we automatically
0: different. know what company you're talking about, right there. But yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. So you know, it, it takes an hours mm. work just getting prepared to go measure the machine. So that's right. Why wouldn't you use a sensor? Exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah. If you if you trust it, if you trust the value that's trust. coming from it, that's right? True. I think everything's coming down to trust. Now, what what I've always liked. Now, I, I you know, I've obviously come from the the, the startup community. I shouldn't say obviously. I did come up from the the startup community. Is what I'm seeing in technology, and Graham, I'll, I'll, I'll get this question to you, is no longer is there a single player to win the game, right? We've, you know, if you go to, you know, industry 50 years ago, it was, well, we're we're, we're an Emerson plant, we're a Foxborough plant, we're, we're an ABB, right? And it was one technology, and they tried to standardize that technology across, right? And what I love to see is, because it's causing disruption. I don't want to see the big guys lose. I don't want to see the small guys win every time. I want to see a combination of, you know, what's best for industry to come out there. Right. And eventually, you know, I guess we won't get into that, Sunil, but the goal is, is, you know, to, to, to have an exit or to have something happen, whether a big guy gobbles you up or, or something like that. But, um, you know, Graham, if you want to talk about it, you can go into as much detail as you want, but I know for a fact through some, some voices here that you went head to head with some of the the bigger players in the industry. Right. And that's always tough for an organization, um, you know, to compete with, with, you know, literally billion dollar companies that have been out there that have the stronghold, they have, you know, the world's best marketing, everything in place. Um, you know, maybe Graham, you could talk a little bit about what you went through with, with that experience, trying to go through the vetting process of, of one of the, you know, a, a big company out there.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting learning experience for um, you know a smaller, younger organization. Uh, so it was arguably the largest oil and gas uh, company in Canada, uh, and they basically went out to market and, and tried to evaluate 42 different offerings in this space, uh, which you know only a big you know oil and gas giant can do, because who has time for 42 uh, companies to evaluate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, And then they shortlisted that down to a list of four companies uh, after reviewing all of the capabilities and then doing some trials. Uh, And Nanoprecise was one of those four. Uh, And this is a company that was basically looking to go out for bid on, you know, arguably somewhere between a three and $6 million contract to basically instrument rotating equipment across all of their facilities in North America. And, we were, we were punching well above our weight class, you know, like the bid documents alone were like a hundred and some odd pages. Right. So no, like we've, we've never even bid something like that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't end up winning, but uh, at the same time, you know, to be list shortlisted to final four, when you're going up against companies like Emerson uh, you know, uh, Siemens and ABB were the the other three. was pretty uh, impressive to us. Where we've only been around what three and a half four years. You know, those companies yep. have been around for decades and have yeah. huge installed yeah. bases and things yep. like that.
0: And I think, and I think, you know, and and you know, I can't tell you how many of those um, uh, bids. I, 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 you know, I've, I've had to go through and jump through hoops. Sometimes with this small company, and sometimes on the back of bigger companies to. To push that train through is is it's not just technology though it's the ability to support it from a world area point of view and all that kind of stuff right so there's there's stuff outside of your technology that I'm sure you know an organization growing as your size you just you just can't compete with um, you know those type of things we've talked about that internally a little bit kind of
2: going you know in a few years we're probably going to come back around to that really large oil and gas customer and they're going to go where have you guys been the whole time (laughs) yeah and who we lost to we still feel like we're a step ahead uh, on the automation of the analysis. Uh, but again, all those things you talked about were, are relevant, you know, management of change, size of vendor, you know, like
0: they do matter. Sure. Of course. Of course. Um, so we, we are going to wrap it up here shortly, but I want to throw something out to you guys. Um, and, um, I said this and I, Graham, I I, I've, I've told you this once and I want to throw it out there because maybe our, our, our listeners can chime in here too. Um, I, 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 I probably wasn't in the place to make this statement about five, year ago, five years ago, but I did. And this is no offense to um, anyone as a vibration analysis, but when I looked at technology and I look at where it's going, I truly believe that this type of technology, you know specifically, you know I'll we'll call it AI for, for, I'll call it vibration analysis, but all condition monitoring, is eventually going to start to intrude on level one and level two analysis. analysts out there, right? Um, You know, it's a term in our industry, we call like level one data dogs, right? It's a common term, hey, you're level one, you got to learn how to collect proper data and stuff like that. So just by having because what you want to do is really condition monitoring, in my opinion, is all about repeatable data, right? You want repeatable data from the same location. So we use pain marks, we use chips, we use these pads, right? So I made a statement five years ago saying eventually, AI is going to replace level one, level two analysis, but it's going to put more value on higher skilled employees. So those that are level three, level four, right? And put more value on the deans of the world. Those people that understand the machines, understand the data. So let AI take care of that data dog or let this technology be the data dog, collect the data, do the first pass analysis, sift through it and say, Hey, Dean, I think I'm finding something here go take an expert look at this. So you don't have to look at 10,000 spectrums a day. So I got mixed emotions with that. (laughs) Some people challenged me. um, And and some people said, I think you're spot on. So I said, I want to see a company one day challenge the, you know, level one, level two vibration analysis. So grab the data sets that are there and see if people can find the same results, see if, you know, an AI engine can find the same results as a person, the same recommendations and things like that. In my opinion, you guys are the closest to doing this. So eventually I want to see you guys come out there and put a post out there saying our, our software was able to, you know, compete with level one, level two, pass the I'll pick Mobius as a certification example, pass the Mobius level one pass, And you actually have a certificate hanging there that your software passed this level one course or past this level two course. So I would love to see that happen. I don't know if it's physically possible, um, but uh, I think you guys from your software point of view are the closest um, and far ahead than anyone else of using technology to sift through that data. So we can leverage those, those experts or, you know, get, get people like Dean, if you don't have those experts to, to, to help you out to, to further do that, uh, second pass analysis on that data. So if you accept my challenge, nano precise team, I'd love to see that happen. And we'll definitely get you on another podcast. If, if something like that could ever, could ever happen. Um, so I, th- I think we've, we've covered everything, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot more we want to get into. Um, I do want to get into more of this remaining, um, time to, to failure, um, because that is a big one. And it's one I often get asked about is remaining useful life. And I've often told people, and and Sunil, I think you answered it right, because you're not, remaining useful life is one thing, remaining time to failure is another, right? And remaining useful life, in my opinion, is the way we're asking the question so when it comes down to ai it's all about asking the right question and when are you going to fail is not the right question to ask right and you gave this analogy of you know someone having cancer and and you know if anybody that's going through this listening to this uh you know we i don't mean to to, to minimize that impact but when we say you know you have cancer and you have you know this is your time frame hopefully it doesn't lead to that or this is your it's it's given to you in risks, right If you continue your lifestyle, your risk is going to, right? So it's really coming, in my opinion, it all comes down to risk. So the right question to ask is not when is this going to fail, is what is the probability or confidence of this failing in the next X amount of days and things like that, right? And you're the first person I've ever had that have addressed it, saying I'm not using remaining use of lice, I'm using um, this time to failure. But the key that you gave to me, which I was so happy, was that you are giving a confidence, an interval with that calculation, right? Because we've all had that when you know, you, know, you know smokers have a 95% chance of having lung cancer, but you see someone lived to their 102 and smoked every day of their life. They had a higher risk, right? But they didn't get it, right? And just like that, you can have a high chance of failing, but we, and I'm sure Dean, you've seen it, where holy smokes, this thing's gonna fail, right? And it hasn't, and it hasn't, and as it keeps on chugging along, it's doing secondary damage, but it's still chugging along, right?
3: Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's amazing how a machine can last sometimes. And it's, <laughs> I don't know, It's there's always the anomaly, right? But, That's right. Um, and, and yeah, it is extremely difficult to give a specific, how long is this going to last? And the only way, in my personal opinion, over the years through experience is you have to have pretty much an identical case study. That's right. You, know? you have to have seen it once before. That's right. So something to actually compare apples to apples.
0: Yeah. And I always thought that was funny is in, in the AI industry, oh, can you tell me this is going to fail? I'm like, well, if you, if you go out and take that million dollar asset and fail it identically to how you wanted me to be able to predict it to fail, I could do it. But you have to go wreck that multi million dollar in the exact same way you want to predict, <laughs> predict it's going to fail, right? And Neil, okay. you mentioned it because you know, people get the, the, the common P to F curve wrong. They think it's for an asset or a component. But really, the PDF curve that we all see—the potential failure to actually having that functional failure—is for an individual failure mode, exactly. right? So just like we said, the electric motor has a hundred different ways of failing. That means it has a hundred different PDF curves with their own slope, with their own time to failure, right? Yes, so yes. it's a race to failure. Really, what's happening with those PDF curves? Which one's going to take you out first, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure um, you know I didn't get to, to everything on my list, but for the sake of time, so. Um for the, for the listeners, we'll start with you, Sunil. Um, how could the listeners get uh, get in touch with you and find more information about you or ask any questions?
1: Sure. Yeah. so they can uh, you know reach out to us at uh, solutions at nanoprecisesc.com. Mm-hmm. and uh, also they can reach out to us uh, you know through, uh, through, through Grant Graham. Graham's email is uh, G at nanopreciseSC.com um and i would leave uh, my coordinates to you and uh, yes they can they can reach out to me so that's the way they can reach out yeah okay
0: good and I, i'll put these in the show notes so anyone listening you can uh, you don't have to worry about spelling graham's last name there <laughs> and uh, graham why don't you go ahead how, how could they reach out to you and get in talk, contact with you finding more information
2: yeah, yeah, the, the website's great, uh, you know, there's case studies up there, uh, you know, a variety of things there, uh, I would like to just comment also benchmark Dean Stevens thanks so much for joining this and uh, Dean is, is uh, able to also talk about some of his experiences if you want to know more More from a. Uh, we could say he drank the Kool Aid but he was he was a, a, a tough critic at the beginning, too, uh, and we managed to win him over so you can ask him about his experience it's not purely just us.
0: That's right, and it's it's actually on that note. I talked to a vendor. I'm not going to mention their names because I think you guys are in in uh, in the works of of, of signing them on as a, as a partner. But down in the down in the states that uh, just uh, threw out their current partnership with their current uh, wireless provider and are moving over to nano Precise And and I don't want to mention names because it might be prematurely. But uh, they there someone I really respected and said, you know, I'm moving over to nano precise because of their technology. And, and what they said to me was after I put them through the ringer, their software never crashed once. All right, cool. Right. So that's a, that's, that's a good thing. So you guys are starting to get some, some, some feedback, like the deans of the world out there. So that's good. Um, and, and Dean, how can, uh, how can people get in touch with you or follow up or anything like that?
3: Well, I guess, uh, firstly, our website, uh, bmreliability.ca. Or you can email us at info at bmreliability.ca or give me a phone call 371-7366, area code 306.
0: Perfect. Area code Saskatoon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Nice time of year to come visit. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, No. Okay. Uh, Thank you, guys. So, Sunil, one last question before you, before we sign off. What is next? On your technology roadmap, is there anything that um, you want to discuss that you know you think is is really going to? Like, you already got one, two, three, four, five, five different sensor technologies coming into one thing. What what is next for you guys?
3: You might have to add another hour. Of this podcast. yeah yeah. So <laughs> pick, pick one thing.
1: We are. I think uh, we would like to. Uh, uh, you know. Very soon, within one month, you will see some major announcements because we are working on, uh, you know, some like groundbreaking products. That's what I would call, uh, you know, uh, to to resolve the power and the connectivity problem because that is... (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay. We're going all <laughs> right, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to part two of this podcast for the next two hours. We're here. <laughs> I smell I smell a little bit of uh energy harvesting, maybe. You're right. Maybe? You're absolutely okay. right. Awesome. Yes. Great, great. So and that's so funny we- because <laughs> I I was already bad mouthing battery and length and stuff like that. So that's funny. Yes, So we
1: have really (laughs) solid results. Anyways, uh, uh, you know, so we will be coming up with soon. So apart from that, you know, so we are, uh, we are hoping to close our series a round Mm -hmm. somewhere in, uh, you know, uh, January or February, we already have a lead investor who is one of our customer. So if uh, somebody wants to join this journey with us, uh, they can partner with, uh, these, uh, you know, this, uh, this customer, which is one of the big oil and gas companies in, in us, they tested three technologies. And finally we have a written confirmation from them, uh, that they have selected and are going ahead with us. Uh, so yes, yeah, thank great. you so much. So, so that's, that's pretty much the update. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, that, that's fantastic. I look forward to, uh, um, having you we'll do another podcast once you release that because there's going to be so many so many people interested to, to learn more about that and uh and uh yeah and once you get that that series a too, to to really scale the business so that's going to be great to see well sunil graham dean thank you so much um steve had to jump off um so we, we really appreciate you coming on and uh hope to have you back on soon thank you so much for the
1: time
3: um,
0: and, and opportunity blair thank Pleasure. You. Thanks, guys.